Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to talk about poverty preachers this morning. I'm just kidding. Ephesians chapter 2. Thank you, Lord. Before I go on, I I wrote a book a year ago. And uh, I revised it. So this is the second edition of this book, Is God Out to Get Me? It's changed a lot of lives. It's helped a lot of people see God more clearly, see him as a good father, not as a bad father. Amen. So I believe this book has touched a lot of people. If you want uh, a book, there uh, are some available. We actually have them um, here at the church today. So if you want to pick one up today, you totally can. Uh, Just go at the very back and we have them on the bookshelf. Amen? Amen. Who wants this one? Anybody? First hand. Back there, who, who, can someone pass it along? Here, can you give that to Jeremy in the back? I'm going to test you on that, boy. I'm going to test you. If you want one, though, they're in the back, so don't worry. Ephesians chapter 2. Last week, we were talking about fellowship, answering the call to fellowship, As we're about to launch our small groups this week, don't forget small groups happening this week. We have a men's and a women's small group, both meeting at the same night on March 16th. Um, The women's will be hosted by Diana Wimp and Stephanie, and then the men's, unfortunately, is hosted by yours truly. So we'll figure it out as we go along, all right? So if you want to hang out with some church folk, if you want to get in the Word together with people, get into some fellowship with one another, join one of our small groups, and there's a sign-up form in the back if you haven't yet to do that. But they're going to be a good time. I mention that because this week we're going into another important discussion about fellowship. But it's going to look a little bit different because I want to talk to you about what strengthened the early church in fellowship. How the early church was strengthened throughout all of their circumstances that they faced. So I want to turn to Ephesians 2. If you're not there yet, you're slow. It's okay. It's on the screen if you haven't, if you don't have it. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Just as others. The Bible says that we were dead in sin. There's other portions in the scripture that it says that we are now dead to sin and alive in Christ. Amen? But at one point in our life, we were dead in sin. Meaning sin ruled our life. Sin ruled our world. Sin was our master. But then something happened to where Paul, when he's writing this letter, something happened to the point where he had to say, and you, Jesus made alive. You were dead in sin. You were a sinner in need of a savior. You were dead in sin, but then God saved you. Then God raised you into newness of life. He created a new creation inside of you. The old is gone. All things have become new. So now you are new, alive with Jesus. I saw a post the other day. Somebody had said, you know, they're basically saying, I won't believe in Jesus until I see somebody raised from the dead. I've yet to see someone documented dead, declared dead, and then raised from the dead. I won't believe until I see it. And it's funny because although things are happening like that all around the world, you just got to look for them. Although that's happening, I have a room full of people who have been raised from the dead. Amen? We have a a church full of people who were once dead in trespasses and sin, 
and now are made alive in Christ Jesus. But see, people are so focused on the natural. They're so focused on physical, external things. And they say, if, if I don't see someone physically raised from the dead, I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe it. But yet, the real power is us being raised spiritually from the dead. It would do us no good if, if we were raised from the dead physically, but we had no spiritual salvation. It would do us absolutely no good to be raised from the dead, but our spirit still being dead in sin and being sentenced to hell eternally. I don't care who got raised from the dead. We all have the same fate. But because Jesus not only demonstrated that raising from the dead physically is possible, he also demonstrated raising from the dead spiritually is possible, making us alive together in Christ. And I say this because before you were born again, you were just like everybody else. You were just like the same as your neighbor next to you. We were all the same until something happened, until we were made alive. There's something new about us. There's something different about us. There should be something different about us. You know, most churches, if you go into the church and you arrested people for being Christians, hard, there's not enough evidence to convict anybody anymore of being a Christian. Nothing's changed. Absolutely nothing. And you know, the Bible says that out of the heart flows the issues of life. Out of the heart flows the issues of life so if in your heart you've truly received this, in your heart if you've truly realized that you were once dead, now made alive in Christ, your heart would recognize that and everything around you would start changing. Everything you did would start changing. Inside out transformation. We just went through a whole seven-week series. Do I have to remind you? It's an inside out transformation. But because... There's no fruit in a lot of people's life. It begs me to ask, do you even know what happened on the inside? Do you even know what took place on the inside? You were made new. You were made into the image of Jesus Christ in your spirit. And if we continue reading in verse 4, it says, but God. Remember, we were just like everybody else. And the scripture says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love, his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace by his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Now you know me. I like to preach on scripture, and then dissect like every single word. So we're going to do that right now. Notice how many times he said together. In verse 5, even when we were dead, just look at the whole terminology. Even when we, it's this togetherness. He's talking to somebody. He's talking to people he has fellowship with. Even though we were dead in trespasses and sin, Christ made us alive together in Christ. That's why I keep saying we are the family of faith. Because once you are in the family, you're a part of the whole family. Amen? We can't do this together by ourselves. We can't do this life alone. We need each other. I need you, you need me. That's how it is. And if you don't like it, more well, tough. That's how it is in this family. 
But he made us alive together in Christ, seating us together in heavenly places with Jesus. And this is the purpose. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show his exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I want to look at a couple more words in this entire scripture. Notice the key word in this entire passage. And it's mentioned a couple of times. I'm going to read it from verse 4 again. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. The exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved. This morning I want to talk to you about Grace. I want to talk to you about grace. Now, if you've been in the church for a while, you know there are categories in the church. There are grace preachers and there are faith preachers. Now, if I were to ask you right now, just right now, let's just do a study, uh, an experiment right here, right now with each other. You don't have to turn this answer in. It's just for you and yourself if you have a pen or paper, you can write this down or put this in your phone. But I want you to think in your head or write down who your favorite out of everybody in, this, in, in the world, everyone, your favorite grace preacher. You might listen to them all the time. Who is it? Who is your favorite grace preacher? Write it down. Make a mental note. And once you're done thinking about that one, I want you to also think about your favorite faith preacher, somebody who is in faith, the word of faith, they're preaching faith, they're, they're just screaming faith all the time. So think about your grace preacher and then think about your favorite faith preacher. All right? Are you done? Everyone good? Have your, your faith and grace preacher in your mind? Okay. If you wrote down or thought about any other person than Jesus Christ, you are wrong. You're wrong. Jesus is the ultimate grace preacher, but he is also the ultimate faith preacher. There's no separation between him and grace and faith. He preaches them together. He lived it together. And we've gotten so stuck in tradition. We've gotten so stuck in, in, in associating ourselves with different people. Oh, what denomination are you? Oh, we're Pentecostal. Oh, we're charismatic. Oh, we're Baptist. Oh, we're this and we're that. We're this and we're that. And we've named our churches entirely based off of one doctrine. We are a grace church. We are a faith church. No. You got to be both. There is no, no distinction between the two. And that's what we've got it wrong. When we've tried to separate the two and we've made it into categories. That grace in and of itself is all that you need to do this life. And that faith in and of itself is all that you need to do this life. And we have grace over there and faith over there waving at each other saying, hey, how's it going over there? I don't believe you. I'm going my way still. And we have this separation that was never supposed to happen. But what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? For by grace, you've been saved through faith. By grace, you've been saved through faith. We've allowed people to determine what faith and grace are. The grace message is one way and the faith message is one way. We've allowed somebody else other than the word of God define what grace and faith are in our life. So we got to get it back together. We are saved by grace through faith. 
I'm going to go back to the other word he was talking about, together. He raised us up together. He made us alive together. He loves us together. You need grace and you need faith. If I'm a grace man and you're a faith person, you need me and I need you. We need each other. That's what we need. Now, there are some people who are excellent at preaching the grace message. We need it. And there are others who are excellent at preaching the faith message. We need it. But the problem is when we start to say, I don't need him or I don't need them. They're a little too out there for my belief. They're a little bit too passive for my belief. We need grace and faith together, both and, not one or the other. By grace, through faith, we need each other. And if you don't know how faith works, then you need to hear about grace. If you don't know how grace works, you need to hear about faith. Because if you don't know how faith works, but all you understand is, you know, God's blessed me, God's loved me, God wants me to prosper, God does all these great things for me, but I don't know anything about faith. I know nothing about faith. I don't, I don't know how to speak to the mountain. I don't know anything you're never going to receive the blessings that grace provided because you have no faith to appropriate it. But if you're sitting in the faith group and you're saying, I'm going to work all my life, I'm going to slave away, I'm going to pray until God answers me, I'm going to twist his arm until I get my blessing, you're not going to receive what grace did because grace says, I'm already here for you. You need them both. You need both to live this life. Amen? Romans chapter 4. It got hot in here. I think I'm just on a word. Amen? Thank you, Lord. Romans chapter 4. Let's continue. Paul says this. What shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Now, I want to take a, a really good look at these, these next words. Thank you, Lord. Let me turn here just so I can get it on my Bible. Thank you, Father. Romans chapter 4, verse 1 says, What shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. He has something to boast about, but not before God. He has something to boast about, but not before God if he's accomplished his things by works. In other words, all he can go before is man. He can only go before man and say, look at what I've done, and men be impressed by him. You know who's not impressed? God. God's not looking at, at Abraham with all the accomplishments he's done and go, wow, you are you're so good. You've done such a good job. I deserve to, I, I gotta bless you. I, I have to bless you. But then what does it say? It says this in verse three, for what does the scripture say? It's always good to go back to the scripture, right? The scripture says, what does scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but they are counted as debt. Man, Just before that, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted. In other words, it was imputed unto him. God, God, it's a, it, that's a finance word, accounted. In other words, you're, you're basically putting something, you're giving something what it deserves because it lined up with what it was supposed to do. 
and he believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. But to him who works, the wages are not grace, but they're a debt. Everybody in this room knows that when you go to work, when you go to your job, and you do a good job, and you, and you punch in your hours, and all that stuff, right? You do all of those things. What happens if you don't get paid? Your employer is now indebted to you. Your employer, now there's a lot of legal stuff that actually happens, but there's, there's this debt that your employer now has to you. You now have this, this, you tell them, I need my money. I worked for my money. You owe me my money, right? Right? That's what the scripture is saying. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. This is what faith does if you're only in faith. If you don't have any grace. Faith goes, I've worked so hard for you, Lord. I prayed for 10 hours today. I read my Bible for the rest of those hours. I, I gave to the poor today. I gave my clothes today. I did all these good things. I served this weekend at church. I went to the, to the Visalia Rescue Mission, and I volunteered for a couple of hours. I did these things, Lord. Now you owe me a blessing. You've now worked and what the scripture says, God now has a debt towards you, or you have a debt towards God. God now owes you something for your work. And that's what the scripture is saying. That to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. Now let me tell you something. God has never and will never owe anybody anything. I don't care who you are. I don't care if God had a brother. He doesn't owe anybody anything. Anything. Humans made that concept of owing people something. God has never and will never owe you anything. But... He has given you everything. That's called grace. That's called grace. If we continue, the scripture says this in verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. To him who does not work, but believes, his faith is counted unto him for righteousness. Just as David also described, the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. You're blessed. Now, there's so many good truths in this, in, in what's happening here. David was standing in the, in the shoes of a prophet right now. He was looking to the future and he was saying, man, blessed are those people someday when God does not impute their sins unto them. Why? Because right now when he was writing that message way back in the day, God was imputing sins. God was holding people accountable for what they did. God said, you messed up, now you owe me. You owe me. And in that day, we owed God. We were, we were debts, debtors to sin, debtors to the law. And this is why the Apostle Paul and other portions of Scripture, he says that we're no longer a slave to fear. We're no longer a slave to the law. We're no longer in bondage to slavery, to the law and sin. Why did he always talk about slavery and bondage to the law? And he always tied it to sin. The law and sin were like duo partners. They were like Batman and Robin. The law and sin ruled everything. 
It told us how to live our lives. It told us what to do. We had no freedom. The law was our ruler and sin was right next to it. And so the people in the Old Testament, all the people you see in the Old Testament, they were living in this fear of the law. This fear of God saying, you know what? If I sin, I, I don't want to get squashed like a bug. I don't want to get zapped from heaven. I don't want to die today, so I can't sin. There was this fear to sin. And this fear to God. But Paul writes here. He was taking us to a time where sin, where the law and sin was not imputed in the Old Testament. When he goes back to Abraham, he was taking us to a place where the law and sin weren't in our life. Because before Abraham, there was no law. Before Abraham, there was no imputing of sins. And after Abraham, after his covenant, after all these things happened, then Moses comes on the scene, then comes the law, then comes imputing sin. And so all these people that Paul is writing to in Romans, you got to remember, these people just witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus. These people didn't have 2,000 years of knowledge to get to a place that we are today. Literally, last week, Jesus died to these people. And so Paul's reminding them, hey guys, we are no longer dead to sin. We are alive to Christ. We are alive in Christ. We're no longer a fear, a slave in bondage to sin and death anymore. We are freed to Christ. It was brand new to them. So then he takes them back to Abraham to remind them, this is how life was before. Life was like this before. We've lived in this for so long. We got to renew our minds to get out of this. And he goes to Abraham. And he says, Abraham just believed. All Abraham did was believe the promises of God and it was accounted to him righteousness. That faith in believing in God's grace accounted him as righteous. God looked at his, his faith and he said, boy, you just believe me. You're not striving. You're not trying to do all these good works. You're not, you just believe I love you so much. You're righteous. That's how it used to be. And then the law came. The law destroyed that relationship with God. And so after Jesus did away with that, people needed to be reminded. People needed to go back to a time where that life actually existed. And friends, that's happening today. Uh, this life is available to us. The life that Abraham had with God, the blessing he had with God for doing absolutely nothing. Think about it. Abraham, he disobeyed the Lord. The Lord told him to leave his country, to leave his family, but he took one of his family members. He disobeyed. The Lord then lied about his wife being his sister so that he wouldn't be killed. But then God still blessed him. God still blessed him. God was faithful. God was gracious. Why? There was no law. No law. Sin was still abounding, but he was not imputing it unto Abraham. So then we get to Romans chapter 4, verse 5, and he starts talking about David and what David said and how David starts prophesying about a time in the future where no more sin was imputed, and that's today. You know the scripture. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, right? Let me tell you something. David wasn't talking about that Tuesday. He wasn't talking about that his day. He wasn't saying, oh, Lord, I woke up this morning. This is the day that you have made. No. You know what he was talking about? He was talking about today, right now, the here, the now. When Jesus came and died and take our, took our sins away, that's the day he was talking about. And the reason I say this is because in context of that scripture, David was saying that he was the whole entire passage leading up to that scripture. He was talking about the day where salvation had come. The day where Jesus came and died on the cross for us, that is the day that the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? That day where sin was no longer imputed. God has never, ever told a single person, wow, 
you followed my law so good, I have to bless you. Oh my goodness, you are sinless. Here's a hundredfold blessing. He has never told anybody such those things, but he, and he never will. He will never look at you and go, wow, you've kept my commandments. Wow, you've kept all 650 trillion billion laws. Wow, great job. Here's prosperity. He never has and he never will. But what has he done and what does he continue to do? He looks at our faith. He looks at our just believing. See, that's where we mix it up. We hear the word faith and we think work. We hear the word faith and we think strive. We hear the word faith and we think do all that we can. Guess what faith means? Believing. Believing. Trusting. Having faith in his word means trusting his word's true. If God said you're healed, guess what? You trust that you're healed. You know what you, you, know what you do when you don't trust you're healed? You go to the doctor every single day to see if you're still sick to see if you're getting worse. You Google your symptoms every single day, seeing what does this mean? Because you don't trust you're healed. If you trusted you were healed, you wouldn't be doing that, those things. Think about it. If, if a sickness or if a, an ailment, a pain in your body, if those things keep you from doing what you would have done if you didn't have those things, and you keep remembering that, and you keep looking up symptoms, and you keep doing that, do you trust you're healed? No. Trusting you're healed is having faith in God's word. Faith has nothing to do with how hard you can pray, with how much you can rend the heavens, with how many prayers you can say. That's not faith. That is not faith. That's works. Now, there is a point where faith without works is dead, but it's not a works in order to get something from God. It's realizing God's already done something, so I'm going to walk in that. It's realizing, wow, God, God, the Bible says that God has healed me, so I'm going to go do what I was going to do before I got sick. Because I'm, I'm healed, so I'm going to go do it. That's what faith is. It's trusting in God's word trusting in his word, and believing in it. Going back to David, though, you got to understand that David called you blessed. King David. King David. Think about this. King David, who slayed Goliath who was a king at a very young age, said, you're blessed. You, we are blessed because we're not living in a day where sin is imputed anymore. Instead of paying for all of our sins, God placed that debt on Jesus. He put the debt on him nailed them to the cross and said, it is paid, it is finished, it's forgotten, it's wiped away, it is erased, it is fulfilled, it is done. It's done. We're not imputed. They're not accounted onto us anymore. They're done. And believing in that, believing that God did that, that we are freed from sin, it doesn't require you to pray every day and ask for forgiveness of your sins every single day because you believed that when God forgave him, he forgave him. When God said he forgave you, he forgave you. You got to believe that. Friends, this is what grace is all about. This fellowship in the grace that we've been given, that he's taken us out of sin and death and he's brought us into life. That is grace. Well, Matthew, you're just giving people a license to sin. Let me ask you something. Can I see your sin license before you got saved? Where is that license at before you got saved? You were a pretty good sinner, and you didn't need a license for it. 
I'm not giving anybody a license to sin. In fact, I believe that in this whole, in this whole entire scheme of things that God thought up, I really believe that God knew the risk he was taking. It was a very, very calculated risk that God was taking to not impute our sins against us anymore. You've got to understand that God gave us free will. We're not robots. We aren't these puppets, like in the government. We are not these robots, forgive me, Lord, that God just controls willy-nilly. We have a free will. And when God said, he, he decided, he's, I'm not going to impute their sins against them anymore. It wasn't just a waking up one day and, oh, man, oh, I'm just not going to impute their sins anymore. He thought about this. He calculated this in his head, that there was a risk at, at, at chance here. There was a risk at stake of these people might just lose all control because there's no more sin imputing. There's no more accountability. These people could go crazy. It was a calculated risk. However, you think God's pretty smart to know when a risk is worth taking? The greater the risk usually means the bigger the reward. And yeah, there are going to be some people, and there are some people who hear this message of grace, and they go off running around doing whatever they want to, sinning however much they want to, abusing this grace. God knew that. But God also knew that there would be people like you, there would be people like me who have understood how much God loves us and no longer impute our sins against us. And he knew that we were the ones that were going to come to him and go, Father, thank you. I want to live my life for you now because of what you did for me. He knew the people that would come to him as well as he knew the people who would run away from him. It was a great reward because it's a free will. It's us choosing him, not being forced to love him, us choosing him. People have always thought, and I've thought this for the longest time, until the Lord quickened me about this. It's not really free will if the options are go to heaven or go to hell, right? It's not really free will if, if, if you don't follow Jesus, you're just going to go to hell. That's not free will, but it is because that's just the end of the road. No one decides where the, how the end of the road happens. That's just how the end of the road is. So if you're going to stay on the path of hell, that's your free choice to go to that place that was there from the beginning. Hell didn't just appear yesterday. God didn't just think, you know what? I'm going to create a place so bad for people who hate me that they will, re they will regret ever following me, not following me. God didn't just make this thing up and go, you know what? These people should be in there. That's not what happened. It was always, it's always been a choice. Always. It's like saying it's not really much of a free will if, if I have the, the choice here to jump off of this cliff and see what happens. Who knows? Or not jump off the cliff. That's like saying that. That it's not, that's not free will. Yes, it is. Those are the only options. Either you live and don't jump or you jump and die. It's your free will to do that. But God, who is rich in mercy, has given us a choice. Live forever with me in paradise or not. That's a choice. God's grace is just so big. It's so... It's so available to us. And it would be a shame. It would be a shame to abuse what he's given us. It would be a shame to ignore what he gave us. Freely given. That's why it says, for by grace you are saved. Grace was given to save us, but through faith we received it. And it's not of our own self, it is the gift of God. You think, 
what I'm sharing you with you right now is good news? That God's grace is here for you? What if I said there's better news? Go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and the scripture says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Did you read that with me? That he gives more grace. You thought this was good. There is more on the way. There's more coming. There is more where that came from. God's grace is never ending. And he gives more grace. If grace was the greatest thing, and that's, that's as good as it gets, why does he give more grace? Man, that just shows the value of grace. So many people have stopped and fallen short. They've stopped at salvation. They said, oh yeah, if you ask somebody, oh yeah, God, God has grace. He saved me from hell. I'm saved from eternal punishment. That's God's grace in my life. And they stop there. And everything else in their life, it has no longer to do with grace, but what they can do for God. They forget, yeah, God saved me. That was God's grace. But the rest of my life is me doing everything that I can, everything that I can work for, and then God will bless me as time goes on. And they leave grace at salvation. But the scripture says God gives more grace. There is grace for you every day, every day. There is grace for you to be saved from hell, and then there's grace for you to be successful at your job. Then there's grace for you to make a mistake and get right back up and be put in leadership. There's grace for you to make a home mistake and having a bad financing option, but then God bringing something into the door to help you pay for something else. There's more grace. There's more where that came from. I said there's more grace. Thank you, Lord. That should be the best news that you've heard all day. That there is more grace. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. There's a saving grace, and then there's a living grace. The grace that we were saved by, and the grace that we live by. Every single day, grace is with us. She's with us. Thank you, Lord. Turn with me to Acts chapter four. I'm going to wrap up pretty soon. I'll let you know when I'm done. <laughs> Acts chapter four, verse 32. This is referred to as the early church. But as far as I'm aware, this is the same church that's here today. This is the same. I said, this is the same church that's here today. Amen. This ain't no early church. This is the church that's still alive and well right here. Amen? Amen. The scripture says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I'm sorry. Is that even a thing? Oh, I'm in Romans. I was looking at Romans chapter 4, and it ended like at 23. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says this, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common, and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace came upon them. Great grace was upon them all. Someone say all. all. It doesn't say that great grace was upon the pastor. It doesn't say great grace was upon the elders. It doesn't say great grace was upon this select group of people on the prayer team. Great grace was upon them all. All of them. And with this great grace, there was also Great power. Great power. Let me ask you this. How do you sum up the book of Acts? How do you sum up 
Acts chapter 1, where these group of people, about 120 people, are in this upper room. Jesus tells them to wait here until the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes down, the Bible says, like a fire, a rushing mighty wind, tongues of cloven fire over their head, and they sounded drunk. The whole Holy Spirit filled the room. They come stumbling out the room looking like drunk people, and people look at them going, they're drunk. And then Peter stands up saying, nope. We're not drunk on that stuff. We're drunk on something else. Amen? And then after he says that, he has the boldness to preach a message to the whole multitudes there. And after that's done, 3,000 people, 3,000 people become a part of that church that same day. What do you explain? How do you explain those events in Acts chapter 1? But then it gets better. How do you explain Acts chapter 2? When in Acts chapter 2, all of a sudden, when Peter's preaching, he gets his boldness. He gets all this, this, this stuff happening into him. And after he's done preaching, the vital church is growing and they're meeting every single day. They're breaking bread together. They're doing great stuff. Then the next chapter, you have Peter and John going to the gate beautiful, seeing this man who couldn't walk, who's about 40 years old, saying, hey, brother, I don't got my wallet on me, but this is what I do have in Jesus' name. Get up and walk. And the Bible says immediately his feet and ankle bones gained strength. Then he ran around leaping around the city, yelling about what Jesus did for them. And then all of a sudden, Peter and John, they get arrested. Oh, no. What did you guys do? Stop preaching in Jesus' name. I tell you, you cannot do this anymore. We're going to cast you into prison. But then they have nothing that they can actually try them for. So they have to release them. Then they go back into where their group was at. Thank God for a fellowship group that we have today you can come running to. Amen? They go back to this group, and all of a sudden they tell them about all the threats that they were, t- they were told, saying what they were going to do to them and all these things. And that group that they were with in fellowship told them, Lord, you hear their threats. Now grant us more boldness. Man, what a prayer is that? In today's day, all you would hear is, Father, look at their threats that they're telling us, Lord, kill them. <laughs> Lord, look at their threats. Send fire down. Chop their knees off. No, no, no. Grant us more boldness so we can keep preaching your word. How do you explain those events? How do you explain all the way from chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, coming here at the very end of chapter 4 when this great power and this great grace is upon them? That's how you explain it. Great grace. The grace of God. The grace of God is what got that church through its early days. And the grace of God is what's going to get this church through its early days. Amen? Amen. Whoa, there's an offering there, envelope. Someone wants it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Where was I? Thank you, Jesus. Let's continue. In verse 33, And with great power, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection. What did Jesus tell them to wait for? In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to wait until the Holy Spirit fills you and you receive power to be a witness. Grace to be a witness. And that's all that they did. They were just sharing what Jesus has done. And it says, And great grace was upon them all. Verse 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. This is our church, okay? Nor was there anyone who lacked. I don't think you understand this, folks. Like I said, the early church is the same church here. If they didn't lack, what can you expect? No lack. 
No lack. Why? Because you're such a good steward of your finances? Because you have a good high-paying job? Because you went to school for four years and got your degree, then went to master's and got your doctorate? No. Because of grace. Great grace among us all. Thank you, Lord. Slap him, Lord. <laughs> It'll be a light slap. Look at the word great grace with me for a second. This word, grace, if it was so great, why did they have to put great in front of it? See, grace is already great in and of itself. Why do they have to put great in front of grace if grace is already great? You know what the word great means in the Greek? It is the word megas. M-E-G-A-S, megas. Megas. You know what word we get in the English language today? Come on, let's use our brains a little bit. Mega. Mega grace. I'm preaching a message today that's entitled Mega Grace. Grace so big, grace so abundant, grace so massive, grace so great that it overflows your life and allows you to do everything God has called you to do and more. That type of grace. Amen? Thank you, Lord. Great grace. And this grace is so good that it does more than one thing. It does multiple things in your life. In 2 Corinthians, we see Paul. You don't have to turn there, but we see Paul struggling with this thorn in his flesh. And I'm not going to fight you on what this was, but the thorn of, the, of his flesh. He went to the Lord in verse 8. It says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. God's grace in our life is the strength for our life. Amen? Amen? God's grace strengthens us to fight our battles, to fight the things the enemy tries to throw, our life, throw in our life. God's grace is bigger than anything in our life. And let me tell you something. You need it. You are not strong enough to fight this battle. You are not strong enough in of yourself to, to fight what the enemy throws against you. You need mega grace. You need this grace in your life. I don't care how much you bench. I don't care how much you lift. I don't care how much you squat. I don't care. You're not strong enough in and of yourself. But thank God we are never in and of ourselves. We are in the Lord Jesus who gives us grace and strength to fight every single battle the enemy throws our way. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord. If you can come up and play for me. In Hebrews 16, the scripture also says this. Let us therefore come boldly, someone say boldly, boldly, to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. God's grace is the strength in our life. God's grace is the help in our life. His grace helps us accomplish what we need to accomplish. His grace will give us the wisdom to do what we need to do in this life. Anything you've ever done, anything you've ever said, anything you've ever, ever accomplished in your life is nothing to do with how good and smart you are. It has everything to do with God's grace, this helping grace of God in your life. God's grace is there to strengthen us and God's grace is there to help us. And you know, this is why in the scriptures, Paul writes that there's this grace that he says, I don't frustrate the grace of God. I do not frustrate the grace of God. You know what? If he can't frustrate it, if he didn't frustrate it, you know what someone can do? They can frustrate the grace of God. And to put this in the best sense that I can with the frustrating the grace of God, it's like when you're, when you're doing something, and you, and you let somebody else do something in your place and you're watching them do that thing and then, and then they're kind of struggling with it and they kind of don't know what to do with it and you're just sitting there going, oh, let me just do it. It's frustrating. 
Ain't it? That's frustrating, the grace of God, when God says, here is my grace. Here is grace I've given to you. Here is every good thing that you need, but you're trying to do it all on your own. Grace is sitting there going, nope, not like that. Let me just step in and do this for you. We don't frustrate the grace. Grace is there to help. It is there to help in a time of need. Whenever you need help, grace is right there. Whenever you need strength, grace is right there. And lastly, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says, For you've been saved. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Grace is the strength in your life. Grace is the help in your life. And grace is the gift of God in your life. Anything that comes in your life that's a gift from Jesus. Let me put it this way. Anything in your life that is a gift from God given to you through Jesus is a gift. It's grace. It is grace in your life. Anything from God given to you through Jesus is called grace. Grace for your life. There's a great minister that I love listening to, and they have a program entitled Grace for Today. Grace for Today. Because every single day, there is grace for that day. You don't know how to do that problem? There's grace for that. You don't know what to do with this situation? There's grace for that. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow? There's grace for that. Grace for today. There is grace for every single day of your life. But grace ultimately is a gift from God given to you through his son, Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, the scripture says, But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus. Victory is a gift. Victory is grace. Victory is freely given, freely received. Amen? Aren't you happy today for the grace of God in your life? Aren't you happy today for God's grace and favor over your life no matter how hard you struggle, no matter how hard you mess up? Grace is there for you today. Stand on your feet this morning. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you, Father, for saving us, for loving us, for continuing us in your grace, Father. And through faith in your grace, Lord, we receive every free gift, every blessing, every provision that you have set before us, Father. We call it down in the name of Jesus. We thank you for it. We thank you for it, Father, for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. Somebody in this room this morning, you need God's grace alive and alive and well in your life right now. You need God's grace to be awoken in your mind right now. To realize nothing that you go through is going to take you from God's grace. There will always be grace for you to get through whatever you're going through. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. And if you ever need prayer at this church, we have a time of prayer dedicated at the end of service. So if you want prayer for anything, maybe you've never been saved. If you're watching online, now's your time to do so. If you need to be reconciled with the Lord, if you've never been with him, if you never followed him, if you want to be a part of his family, receiving this saving grace, receiving the grace for today and the grace for tomorrow and the grace for the next day, all you have to do is just believe on the Lord Jesus and say, Father God, thank you for saving me. Lord, thank you for loving me. God, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I believe that you died and you rose again for my sins, Father. You've erased them completely. You've gotten rid of them completely. And Father, through your grace, I will live for you from this day forward. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And if you need to receive the Holy Spirit, we have prayer ministers with you. The Holy Spirit's given to you, just like any other gifts given to you. You just got to believe and receive in Jesus' name. So if you want prayer for anything this morning, just come to the front at the end of service, and we'll be glad to pray for you. 
But let me bless you guys in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I call you guys blessed and prosperous in everything that you do in your life. I pray that whatever you set your hand to do will prosper in Jesus' name, that you continue living in the victory and remember remember that you are always welcome in our family of faith. God bless you guys. We love you. We'll see you again next week.